We are finishing up today uh, our series in First Peter. We, the end of June was when we began, and today we will bring it to completion. And it's been an interesting one, and apparently it's one that's gotten me to be very self-critical, because as I thought about the sermon that I prepared, and I practiced it, and I listened to it, probably the, about the 15th time I listened to a part of it, I realized that I was really down on myself in the sermon. I, my illustrations are, are hard on me. Um, so apparently that tells us a little something about what First Peter has been doing in me. It's really made me look at myself again, and perhaps it's done the same with you. And as I was reflecting, I don't know why this happened this week, but as I was reflecting on First Peter and how uh, to conclude the series, I began, uh, it's hard not to think, anyone who follows professional football has probably uh, seen the news stories, I began thinking about this hazing investigation that's been going on in the National Football League. I don't, anybody follow football? You can't avoid it, right? I was ironing my shirt this morning, and there was a new development on the Today Show. I do that on Sunday mornings when I iron and watch something. It's Today Show today. And uh, it all began, you know, with our rivals, the Dolphins, one of our rivals, you know, because they're in our division, and uh, some uh, a player who quit, who left the team, refused to play because of the abuse that he was facing, and it's just sort of opened this this uh, Pandora's box. Uh, it's it's gone across the whole league of all these uh, abusive and juvenile initiation rituals that rookie players throughout the league have to endure during their first years in the pros. And there are so many opinions that have been thrust uh, on us based on this. I mean, some say that this is just a way to toughen players up, and the reason that we're having a problem with it is because we're becoming weak. The country's just weak, and players are weak, and uh, we just don't know what it means to be tough and strong. Others say that these sorts of things only increase the bloodlust in an already violent and dangerous sport, and doesn't help. Others, as I just did, label these behaviors as abusive and juvenile. It reminds me of playing sports in high school. And others see them as nothing more than harmless fun intended to initiate new players into this fraternity, into this community that is professional sports. And at the very least, this whole drama has revealed a truth that I think we've all known, uh, but maybe we haven't wanted to think too deliberately about. And it's that some people thrive under the threat of negative reinforcement and verbal abuse. Some people thrive under that. Some people are strengthened by that, whereas other people crumble in that sort of an atmosphere. And I sort of avoided following this story, even though it's been everywhere, and I do like to watch ESPN and things like that, and they seem to not be able to get away. But I've tried to avoid it because, for me, it hits a little too close to home. I played uh, competitive sports throughout my childhood and teenage years, and I played on some pretty competitive teams and enjoyed a modicum of success in a couple. And throughout those years, I played under a wide variety of coaching styles. And I've been in those locker rooms. I did play under a couple of coaches who motivated through threats, through public humiliation, and other forms of negative reinforcement. I can remember one coach pulling us aside at halftime on a Friday night game and saying, if you don't win this game, you expletives. This is a Christian school. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be up at 5 a.m. tomorrow morning running till you puke. <laughs> that was fun. We lost and we ran. They were not empty threats. Believe me. Like this player from the Dolphins who left the team, I never handled that kind of an atmosphere very well. 
there was a time in high school under a particular coach in which I felt trapped in a situation I couldn't handle and out of which I'd never find my way. I lost my self-confidence, my hope in the future, uh, evaporated, my experience in all of life turned sort of gray, and even outside of the, of the athletic field, I found myself um, depressed and uh, struggling almost all the time. And I thank the Lord to this day that I stumbled upon a counselor who helped me to rebuild my self-esteem and my hopefulness before I gave up completely. And that was the grace of God in my life. But you know, well, some of you are teenagers. I think everybody's been a teenager, right? Nobody skipped uh, the teenage years. Um, at the time, some of those things feel like they'll last forever, and I'll get back to that later. But I remain friends with that gentleman today, and I still take him to be God's grace in my life to save me. For a time in the evangelical church, and I think this is where I get back to Peter and why I started thinking about that abuse thing, because the church has been accused of the same thing, hasn't it? There was a time in the evangelical church in which we embraced wholeheartedly this sort of negative reinforcement uh, way of motivating people to follow Jesus. We preached hell, fire, and brimstone. We believed that the first goal of any gospel presentation was to convince a person that they were horrible, vile, wretched human beings who deserved nothing more than death and eternal torture. We believe that that persuasion was the first step of the gospel. If we could get someone to believe that, then we were on the road. We threatened people with suffering in this life and eternal torment, torment in the next if they couldn't get their acts together. We embraced a version of the gospel that seemed intent on scaring and guilting people into the kingdom of heaven. Right? Well, I mean, we did that. And it wasn't just us. I mean, it's happened in cycles all throughout the history of the church. And as is true in sports and in any venue of life, really, some people thrived under that sort of teaching, and others withered. Those who thrived tended to think of those who didn't as weak, or worldly, or self-centered, or soft, or deluded, or something like that. While those who withered came to think of the church as a bunch of bullies or of holier-than-thou, self-righteous warlords. You know the story I'm telling. The culture today, of course, and much of the church with it has shifted. And we've shifted almost to the exact opposite of where we at one time were. We've shifted towards greater tolerance and a pervasive live-and-let-live ethic. But for those of us who are committed to remaining in submission to the teachings of the prophets of Israel and the apostles of Jesus, to those of us, for those of us who insist on reading and studying the scriptures with the intention of submitting to whatever we find there, whatever we discover through them, we often find ourselves outside of the world of tolerance and back in a world of negativity and judgmentalism. Doesn't it feel that way sometimes when we read the scriptures honestly? And I'm aware that this series on 1 Peter has probably felt less accommodating to our natural desires and inclinations than we're accustomed to in our everyday lives. Peter has been calling us to quite a radical way of living, hasn't he, for those who have been here? And it's one that's filled with fearful images. Matter of fact, if you look at the titles of the sermons going back to June, I'm sure there are some who would say, that is the worst series I've ever seen. Look at what we've been talking about. Living as exiles in the world. Embracing priesthood and the emptying out of ourselves for the sake of others. Living in submission to authorities that abuse us. Embracing sacrifice and death and suffering. I mean, that all sounds pretty unhappy. Pretty unpleasant, doesn't it? 
And Peter has seemed to judge any inclination we have towards the desire for happiness or comfort or security. He's been hard on us. Perhaps some have felt overwhelmed by these teachings of Peter. Perhaps this series has felt a little bit like an abusive teammate or an abusive coach, deriding us constantly. Perhaps some did what we do when that happens. We just tuned out, and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't remember hearing anything that difficult. <laughs> Perhaps this whole way of the life of Jesus, this whole image of the cross and suffering and dying is leading us to despair. Have you felt beaten and abused, beaten up and abused over these last weeks? I, I have, apparently. <laughs> I'm the one preaching it. Have you questioned whether you really have the fortitude for this Christian thing? Are you despairing, perhaps, that in following Jesus, that life is going to be all doom and gloom? Suffering, testing, difficult, lonely, miserable? I mean, is that how it has sounded? I mean, did, did you come to Jesus the way that I did? Did you come with the hope that following Him was going to improve your life? Were you envisioning Christianity like a big hug from a loving Heavenly Father that would fill you with purpose and hope and joy and maybe, just maybe, a little prosperity? Has Peter sort of taken the wind out of your sails and left you adrift in an uncertain world, made more perilous, not less perilous, by your relationship with Jesus? If you've been listening, this might be the case, and I know, I know. It would be so nice, wouldn't it, if Christianity was as unrealistic and as pie-in-the-sky hopeful as some versions of the Gospel make it seem today? But Peter was writing to people who didn't have it easy. And he and the other writers of Scripture, they were living in a real world with real problems. And they were trying to help followers of Jesus to understand how their personal experiences fit into the larger story of God's redemption of all things. And so Peter has been honest with us. And, you know, that's not usually what we want, right? We really want someone to lie to us convincingly. I mean, that's what we come here for, right? But I do think that all this honesty is not intended to depress us or to lead us to despair or to rob us of our hope. I don't believe that was, has been Peter's intention. I think all this honesty has been intended to inspire us. I mean, first, Peter hasn't told us anything we didn't know already, right? I mean, none of this is news to, maybe to some of us who haven't lived very long, but for those of us who've lived any time in this world, none of this is really new. I mean, we all know that life is hard, right, at times? I mean, we all know that the world tends not to like Jesus or his teachings entirely. We all know that things can go sideways pretty quickly in life and leave us licking our wounds and questioning our future. I mean, that's not news to most of us, is it? Maybe the surprising thing is that an apostle knew that. Right? Because Christians are supposed to be deluded. Isn't that what the world says? I think Peter's intention throughout this short epistle has been to face this world and our lives in it with brutal honesty. But not for the purpose of depressing or discouraging us, but for the purpose of freeing us. I believe that all that Peter has challenged us to embrace has been intended for our good. To help reveal to us our purpose in life. To help us to, give, to attain what Jesus has already given us, which is freedom from the tyranny of sin. And all of that, that our lives might be filled with a joy that supersedes our circumstances. I think for Peter, this way of living is one that brings true and lasting happiness, and for which it is 
worth sacrificing all that we formerly valued. So if you have felt beaten up over these last weeks, if you felt like some of these teachings are more than you could handle, I hope today as we conclude our series you'll feel lifted up. I certainly did. Though my illustrations won't look like that, I guess. Uh, we're continuing in this final mini-series. If you're not already there, I'll invite you to take your Bibles and open them to First Peter. For the last time in this kind of a worship service for a while, I'm sure. And I've entitled all three of these concluding sermons Embracing Sacrifice. And all three, as has been true of Peter's teaching throughout the entire series going back to June, they have a, a, a fundamental belief that we all say in the church, but Peter has been forcing us to actually look at what we say, understand what we confess. And it's this, that we have one role model, one exemplar, one person to whom we should look to understand what it means to be made in the image of God, to walk as God would have us walk in this world, and to determine God's will for us and for our lives. Jesus. Jesus is our exemplar. Jesus shows us God's way in this world. The problem, of course, for us with Jesus is that He doesn't generally answer the questions we want answered. When we want to know what God wants for us, we usually mean that if, if you're not married and you want to get married, who does God want me to marry? Or, or if, you, if you're looking for a career or to change careers or to get a career for the first time, what job does God want me to have? What state does He want me to live in? What house does He want me to buy? Of course, Jesus looks to be useless to those questions, right? Because... Well, maybe that means that those questions are not as important as we think they are. Jesus shows us the way. Sometimes we get caught up in the details. And one of the things that Jesus has shown us is that the secret to true contentment, the secret to true joy in life, the secret to happiness that can last through the most difficult of circumstances... That secret will remain inaccessible and unattainable so long as we cling to our lives, to our security, and to our happiness. As counterintuitive as it may seem, I believe Peter's been insisting that it's only by releasing our instinct for self-preservation, by releasing our desire for safety and security, by releasing our pursuit of personal happiness, that we will discover what the old hymn called joy unspeakable and full of glory. True and lasting contentment in this world. And we will be free to enjoy this present existence in a way that those who don't know Jesus and don't follow Him will never understand or experience. Two weeks ago we discussed Jesus' overcoming of the powers of evil. And last week we discovered uh, Jesus' overcoming of the slavery of self-centeredness. Today, I hope we will revel. I hope we will because we plan to celebrate at the end. You see the communion elements before you. Today, we will revel in Jesus' overcoming of suffering. And that's the title of this third and final part of our final series in Peter. Suffering is overcome. 
So if you have your Bibles open, I'll invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. And I'll prepare you uh, for what we're about to read. Peter more or less is summarizing everything we've studied so far. There's almost nothing new in the, in the verses we're going to read today. And that gives me great freedom to talk about the whole epistle. And so that's what I hope to do today. There are a couple of statements that you're probably going to get hung up on, and I'm probably not going to spend enough time on them for you, but we can talk about them afterwards. But I think it's important at this stage of our study of 1 Peter to put the entire book in perspective. And I think these last verses help us to do that. 1 Peter chapter 4, begin reading in verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome? What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. You recall in a previous sermon that the next verses we have already discussed. So I'm going to move on to chapter 5, verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will, restore, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Some ten years ago, uh, when I was first diagnosed with cancer, and I've shared that story here. If that's news to you, I apologize for the shock. I have been told before that I should put a little card that says cancer card so that people are given forewarning that I'm going to bring it up. Um, I try not to go here too much, but this uh, series has, has led me here several times. Uh, one of the ironies of First Peter is that I preached a sermon from it on suffering two months before I was diagnosed. Um, and uh, th that's probably why this particular book leads me back to that experience constantly. little transparency. And so it was ten years ago uh, this year um, that I was diagnosed. Uh, just uh, September was the anniversary. And I've shared on a couple of occasions, individually and sometimes from the pulpit, that that experience was a petrifying one for me. Uh, I'm not proud of the fear, I guess, but I'm also not ashamed of it, apparently, because I talk about it a lot. I was petrified of dying. I was petrified of chemotherapy. I was petrified of radiation. I was petrified of sterility, which they told me was virtually inevitable. I was petrified of facing God and facing judgment. 
I was petrified of everything. I mean, there was very little I could think of that didn't scare me at that point in my life. And the largest part of my fear stemmed from the reality that I didn't know what was going to happen. Not in the long run and not even moment to moment. I just didn't know what each day was going to hold. I didn't know what the next year was going to hold. I didn't know what the next five years were going to hold. It was one of the most unsettling and uncertain periods of my life. Probably not the most, but very close. My call here was another one. (laughs) Now, if my doctors could have guaranteed me that chemo would work, if they could have guaranteed it, then things would have been different. If I knew that I would live through the cancer, that I would not become infertile, and that instead I would have two wonderful children after that experience, if I knew that, if I knew that I'd be back here in New England, back home, pastoring a church of grace-filled and spirit-filled people, I might have experienced my diagnosis and my treatment differently. But I didn't know any of that. I didn't know what was going to happen. For all I knew, my life was over, and the future that I had hoped for was never going to come into reality. And I was terrified. I had no happiness. I couldn't enjoy anything. I mean, everything had just turned dark. Some of you know what that experience is like. And God may, on many occasions in our lives, leave us in darkness like that, with no confidence or surety that things will get any better than they are right now, and we don't much like the way that they are. And those moments test our faith. They refine our faithfulness in God. And they help us to see just how much we trust or don't trust Him. But even though we go through seasons like that in life, even as Christians, life itself is not that way for us. We may despair for seasons and moments of our lives on earth when the future is uncertain and unclear, and perhaps even decidedly dark and painful. But we will not despair. We must not despair ultimately. We can rejoice even in the darkest of moments, and we can find happiness and contentment when others are running in fear and terror. Why? Did you hear the words of Peter? Chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To Him be the power forever and ever. Amen. God is on our side. God is on our side. God has shown us that after having persevered in our faith throughout our journey in this world, complete healing, complete victory, eternal life, and the love and presence of the God of all creation lie before us. Whatever our present, that is our future. We know how this turns out. We have been diagnosed with a terminal illness. It's called sin. And we will die. But we know how it turns out. 
after we have suffered for a little while, God will restore us. God will make us strong, firm, and steadfast. And God will repay all that the world has tried to take from us. What the Gospel provides us is a truth. And it's a truth... I, when I first wrote the sermon, I said it was the truth. And that's a little bit arrogant, right? It's a truth. And it's an important one. And the Gospel provides it to us. And it's not something the world doesn't know. It's not something the world doesn't understand. But it is something the world has had no ability to grasp. What truth? The truth that the secret to happiness and contentment, at least one of them, and joy in this life is this. Are you ready for it? I'll give you time to collect your thoughts in case you've been ignoring me to this point. <laughs> this is the line, right? The secret to happiness and contentment and true joy in this world is the freedom to enjoy the present moment without regret for the last or fear of the next. One of the secrets to happiness and contentment and true joy in this world is the freedom to enjoy the present moment without regret for the last or fear for the next. The world understands that. It does. And so it tries to build walls of safety and security to protect itself from the past and from the future. Health insurance keeps us from worrying about past sickness and the debts that we've accumulated, and it protects us from fear of getting sick again, at least financially. Investments in retirement keep us from worrying about the years in which we can't work to support ourselves. Life insurance protects us from the fear of what will happen to those we care for if, if we were to die. Militaries protect us from the fear of our enemies. And wealth... Yes, wealth provides us a safety net so that we are not so fixated on the debts of our past and the peril of the future. The world knows the secret, but it has no understanding of how truly to experience it. These walls all work to a degree and for a time, but in many ways they are built on shifting sand. Very little in truth can protect us from the future or the past, absolutely. And so this desperate search for security, for safety, and the happiness and joy they promise, it's a fool's errand, really. However, the Gospel offers a different road to the same peace and joy. Instead of protecting us from the difficulties of life, from suffering and uncertainty and dying and death, the Gospel allows us to embrace these things without fear. How? The Gospel promises that even if the worst happens, even if the worst happens, God will make all things new. Christians can enjoy the present moment without regret for the last or fear for the next. Not because we don't have regrets. And not because the next moment might not be horrible. But because no moment can undo what God has promised to do for us and in us. We know how this ends. And that knowledge should free us to find joy in every moment and season of this life. Even in those moments and seasons in which the world is overcome by terror. When I was a teenager... I remember every experience feeling eternal. Those who have been teenagers, you know what I mean? 
Those who are teenagers, I know I'm an old fuddy-duddy, just ignore me for a bit. When I was in love, I felt like that feeling would last forever, that it will never end. When I was heartbroken, I felt like I would never be whole again. When I did poorly on a test, I felt like my entire future had crumbled beneath my feet and that I was going to be homeless on the street because I got a C. <laughs> when I made an enemy, I knew we'd be mortal foes forever. And when I made a friend, I was sure we'd still be hanging out when we had kids. And we were married and we were old. And older people always told me the same thing when I was teenagers. It's sort of what I'm telling you and you won't listen to it because I didn't listen to it. They said, things change, feelings fade, life has its ups and downs, or whatever else. And I thought they were just crazy, jaded, sad, tired, shriveled up old fogies who had given up on life and forgotten what it really means to be alive. I'll never be that. I'll never quit like that. But the longer I live, the more temporary things feel. And some of you know what I mean by that. It feels like just yesterday, and here's a bit of, apparently I'm a wimp. I, I mean, I never don't think of myself as a wimp, I think of myself as strong, but every illustration I have, I'm crying or I'm upset or something. And I can remember when I was going to college, I was petrified. I was sad. I mean, I loved my home. I loved my parents. You can tell if you've ever seen me hang out with them. Uh, I never wanted to leave. I didn't want any of that to change. And I knew when I was leaving that change was coming and it petrified me and I was heartbroken by it. And I remember the night before I left for college just weeping in my bed. It was like it was yesterday. If I go back and think about it too much, I'm right back there. Like it, I, And I forget, wait, I have kids and I'm married. That was... 19 years ago. It feels like moments ago that Jennifer and I were getting married and we were excited and arguing and excited and 15 years ago. I mean, it could have been yesterday. And some of you have lived much longer than me and you can tell more impressive tales than that. I guess you have to live a little while in the world. I don't know how long it takes, but eventually we begin to realize just how short this life is. I remember my grandfather saying in his 80s that he sometimes looked in the mirror and was surprised not to see a 14-year-old face. <laughs> Nothing lasts forever in this world, and for most in the world they mourn that reality, they mourn that truth. But we as Christians can rejoice that nothing lasts. I mean, the years of plenty don't last in this world, and that is hard to accept, I know, especially when you think that life is about gathering those. But the years of suffering and want, they don't last either. And that is great peace for those of us who know that when our few years on this planet are through, we have an eternity with God in a world in which joy is unending. My father's dad died of bone cancer. And it was a tormenting and horrible road for him to watch. For him to walk and for me to watch. I can still hear his voice saying these words. And he said them so frequently, I can still hear the way he said them. He'd say, the old boy is after me. The old boy is after me. And I imagine, he never explained himself, but I imagine he meant the flesh or Satan or the sinful nature or that old self he had left behind all those years ago when he followed Jesus. And he felt even at the end that it was still after him. He felt the temptation to quit, to turn back, to turn away. But he didn't. 
And he didn't because he had another saying, and we heard this one often as well, maybe more often than the other. And somehow it spoke louder to him than that old boy's voice. And it was this, there's too much to gain to lose. There's too much to gain to lose. We know how this ends. And nothing that happens here can take that away. Life is short for the overwhelmingly blessed and the wretchedly cursed in this world. Wealth and security and pleasure, they're not worth sacrificing eternity for. And pain and suffering and heartache are not worth sacrificing eternity because of. There's just too much to gain, to lose. We can rejoice in the midst of suffering. We can receive peace in the midst of life's storms. We can celebrate when the world mourns. And we can discover a peace and contentment that will follow us through all the days of our earthly lives, no matter what season or moment we find ourselves in. Not because God promises us no suffering in exchange for our following Him but because God promises us that the joy set before us is so unimaginably bright that this short journey through this testing ground of faith that we call our lives will make all of this seem worthwhile. Perhaps there's a reason. I mentioned this some weeks ago. We might as well wrap up the series with it. Perhaps there's a reason that more women tend to follow Jesus than men percentage-wise in the world throughout history. We've, we've bantered around the ideas. We don't really know why. But perhaps part of it is that women endure childbirth. Perhaps a woman knows more than anybody else that sometimes to get the greatest joy we must undergo the greatest peril and the greatest pain. Perhaps that is something that some of us know but forget when it comes to faith and we must be reminded of it again. A woman endures childbirth for the joy of the baby she will hold afterwards. And we can endure this life, whatever it may hold, as Jesus did, for the joy set before us. How many times did Jesus call the perils we face in this world birth pains? There is a future. There is hope in the midst of suffering because nothing will last forever that we do to ourselves or to others in this world. Nothing we do can be permanent. For those who believe this is all they have, that is a desperately sad thing to say. But for those of us who know that an eternity with God is the future of all those who can follow Him through this period of distress, it is the greatest news we have ever heard. No scar you are given will last forever. No pain you endure will last forever. No sickness that accosts you will be part of your story for eternity. These things are temporary. They're painful. They're horrible. They're unending. They're emotionally destructive. But they will not last. There is only one thing and one person that can make it happen. One thing that will last forever. And that is the redemption of Jesus Christ. You will be free. So do not let the trial you are undergoing rob you of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can rejoice in your suffering, not because you like suffering, but because you know how this ends.
and it ends with resurrection from the dead. How do I know? Because Jesus rose from the dead. May it be so.